Hello, welcome to Romaniacs. No squirrels were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, unwitting star of Leave.eu's Twitter feed. After they used the cover of my book, The Ministry of Truth, to criticise Labour's pledge to teach children about oh the downside God. of the British Empire. Something which George Orwell was very keen on pointing out. Um, I can't speak for designer David Pearson, but please donate my fee, which I'm sure you're sending, to OFOC. The registration deadline for this year's general election has passed. Over three million more people registered after the election, and... Hopefully not all of them were previously registered and didn't realise it. Um, according to ICM, only 6% of students plan to vote Conservative, and every single one of them will be considered for a cabinet position at some point in their lives. <laughs> uh, so more young voters registered is uh, bad news to the Tories. We'll be with you from now till polling day and beyond, and I'm joined by a few of our regulars. Ian Dunt is editor at politics.co.uk. We thought about editing out his laughter in the style of a BBC one o'clock news clip. <laughs> <laughs> the technology required to do that has not yet been invented. <laughs> Twice. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Um, so the polls looked pretty dire last week, but Labour now gaining in Wales and a little less so in the country at large. Um, are those who registered before yesterday's deadline going to make the difference? Will Corbyn's 451-page semi-bombshell about the NHS change things? Do you know, well, we don't know how many people will end up... We don't know how many of those overall numbers people who are going who are applying to register will actually count for it because they could already be on the register, yeah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So we don't know, and it depends where they are. And I mean, it also depends, you know, who they vote for. <laughs> That's going to be a crucial factor in this whole thing. So we don't know. But I, think, I mean, there are some reasons to feel slightly more upbeat this week than there were last week, but we are still very far away from Do being able to legitimately feel upbeat. Yeah. It was quite, <laughs> remarkable, quite remarkable to have Tony Blair coming out basically in favour of a hung parliament. Which, yeah. of course, you can't vote for. You can hope for, but you, <laughs> but you can't vote for. Mm. Although, if you vote tactically, that's probably what you get. <laughs> <laughs> What's that tactical voting, Naomi? I didn't know you were interested <laughs> in that. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, Naomi Smith is CAO of Best of Britain, Master of the Dark Arts of Tactical Voting. <laughs> um, Naomi, uh, you've just issued, you've just updated uh, Best of Britain's voting advice. Yeah. Um, What's changed in the in the MRP data? Well, we've seen the squeeze on the Lib Dems uh, happen. So there's been um, uh, a squeeze by mostly by the Labour Party. Uh, so the Labour Party are performing better in this round of MRP than they were previously. Um, However, of course, what we've now had to account for is the Brexit Party standing down in the 317 seats that the Conservatives won at the last election, plus um, dozens of others. And we've had to intelligently reallocate their votes to the other parties. Um, we've talked about that on this podcast before, where in uh, 2017, the UKIP vote that didn't stand split about 50-50 uh, towards the Conservatives and 50% not. Um, this time, actually, it's 74% of Brexit Party votes that appear to be going over to the Conservatives. So that's Can you quite... account for the ones that wouldn't vote at all if they can't yeah. vote for the Brexit Party? Yes, yeah. So the, the model has kind of tried to build in all of that. So we have now seen um, a bit of a, a, an increase for the um, Conservatives in those seats, obviously. Um, and we've now, the big changes that we are now going to make some recommendations in Scotland. Uh, previously, we were only doing England and Wales because all of the Scottish seats were remain on, remain fight. And as an anti-Brexit organisation, we just weren't interested in getting involved in that. Now it looks like the Conservatives are in danger of taking um, 12 seats, but they're within a few percent either way in a further uh, 10 or so. So we are now making about uh, 20 recommendations in Scotland. Um, so that's that's the kind of the headline changes. Um, and can you confirm that Michael Gove quoting Stormzy lyrics 
is officially the rock bottom of this election campaign. <laughs> and then it, it literally cannot get any worse than that. Uh, now you've jinxed it, Dorian. And of course, there's going to be some horrendous thing. That, of course. Some awful dancing or something by a politician. Someone will be even more toe-curlingly cringe. Um, there's still time for literal blackface, Tories. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to beat go. Push the boat out. Alex Andre is a part-time Pasha Salim and full-time Remainer polymath. Hello, Alex. Hello. So there's some lively stuff uh, among the Tory candidates this week. Uh, Tory Lee Anderson is going to be caught for, by the mail setting up a friendly voter by phone before meeting him on the doorstep, and the whole thing was hot-miked and caught on camera. <laughs> Carl McCartney, the Conservative candidate former MP for Lincoln, has been caught retweeting far-right posts. Um, so in the sort of great tide of national news, these things get to sort of swept up in all of these other issues, like the various suspensions of candidates and old tweets resurfacing. It's a lot to keep up with. So for it to change the national conversation yeah, yeah. on a local level do you expect any uh, you know various kinds of misbehavior to really matter you know the the actions of individuals overriding the party stuff in some areas i mean it always happens there are always a few surprises aren't there where there was some local issue that made a big difference but overall i don't think in a in a huge way i mean um this is the election where people like Heidi Allen and Dominic Grieve, uh, you know, the attempt is to replace them with people like Lee Anderson and Carl McCartney. Uh, and mm. that's the general trend. It's happening across the aisle as well. Mm. Um, and so I think past the election, the the IQ average in the House of Commons will have dropped <laughs> Uh, a couple of dozen points, and that's not good for anyone, really. No. I'll, sorry, I'll try to be cheerful. Um, I am making an effort to outwardly influence my mood. So I'll say everything cheerfully, even if it's... Good, good. And you should be, because, I mean, I agree <laughs> with... be quite freaky. I, I agree <laughs> with Ian. I'm trying, all right? I agree with Ian that things are a bit better this week than last week. RMRP, yes, it shows that there is potential for the Conservatives to get a big majority, but it also shows that in just 57 seats with some tactical voting he can be denied that majority the number of seats where there were um you you, it, you we only needed 5000 votes to catch the conservatives was 160 plus it's now down to 130 it's falling everything is slowly going in the right direction sure but 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 the overarching narrative remains that we are somehow in a position where someone as fucking awful, as dishonest, as immoral as Boris Johnson, you know, will still win. We're just talking about whether he'll get a majority or not, which can't be a good position to be in as a country, can it? I mean, he won't win if he doesn't get a majority. Just, to be, I mean, just on the basics of sure, because he no, won't get. I think he's saying get But he will still be the the most popular. You know, yeah, yeah. you look at his numbers and they're still pretty high, and you think, how? Yeah. How is this happening? He's more trusted than Corbyn. Where yeah. the main, you know, I'm not saying Corbyn is is incredibly trustworthy, but the main <laughs> thing about Boris Johnson is that he's an opportunistic liar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and sort of really everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah. So, but I was doing I was doing a series of uh, um, sort of workshops for first time voters all last week, going to um, you know all ages. I was going to sort of community centres and universities and international school and places like that. And I I was gobsmacked by the sort of questions I was 
getting you know i was getting questions like you know 20 minutes into it so are the tories the same as the conservatives and you know things like that and and i just think there's a tiny group can of you people. clarify for our listeners <laughs> yes they are, are they, the they are the same they are the same <laughs> so okay, but good. but I, I i just mean that there's a tiny group of people who are interested in politics and you know the vast majority of people who know what they're going to vote for when it issues forth from the, yeah. their mouth on the day. I, I was really hoping that the right-wing vote was going to be split between the Tories and the Conservatives. But you're, <laughs> you're saying that's not true. Oh my goodness. This is a, next next time we could, we could launch a Tory party, stick it on every... <laughs> yeah. every um... Well, in, um, in the Cities of London Westminster seat, which um, uh, was obviously a very, very you know safe Tory, Conservative yeah, yeah. seat and has subsequently become a, a pretty lab con marginal seat and now looks to be a, a three-way marginal, potentially two-way between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. The old Liberal Party has decided to stand a candidate. Oh, wow. And the Liberal Party is, of course, a Leave Party. It's a it's a pro-Brexit party. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a, a slightly sneaky attempt to take mm-hmm. some votes off Chuka Amuna as the Lib Dem candidate. There. Yes, I wonder who's paying that deposit. I did like uh, Richard Bergen's tweet. He's like, Boris Johnson is a Tory. He doesn't want you to know that, but he is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure he's comfortable with people knowing that. I, I like, as the leader of the Conservative Party, I don't know how he was hoping to keep that on the down low. It was the weirdest tweet. I didn't know what that was about. Anyway, another great reason. Has that guy ever been on Bergen? TV and not fucked up in some way? Like He, just he wasn't even on TV, he just fucked up on Twitter, on didn't Twitter, he? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he just can't... But I, I don't know, the way... No, no, there are certain things that, like, you know, you look at the Labour press, the press operation, and they're just like, who should we put up? And it's like, Bergen and McCluskey. They're our strikers. And you're like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Why these people? Um... On today's show, we'll be covering a difficult week for the parties as they launch their manifestos and the polls shifted under our feet once again. We'll also discuss how the Brexit debate may free us from the spectre of empire. Bad news for Frank Mansoir. <laughs> <laughs> following part one of our Ask Romaniac special last week, we'll be answering more of your questions at the end of the show. That's all after a few Christmas shopping reminders from Alex. Don't bother Santa with your Christmas list. He's got enough on his plate negotiating the border in the Irish Sea and trying to keep hold of his shrinking migrant workforce of highly skilled elves. <laughs> Instead, why not use our Christmas online market with mugs, T-shirts and phone covers for the discerning Romaniac and all their brexit relatives in a huge range of styles, as well as our classic All I Want for Christmas is EU and Ultra Remainer, designs in brand new colours. You can now sample the tortuous pro-EU puns in our brand new football range. Why not give the Arsenal fan in your life a mug with a slogan Never Gonna Give EU Up? You get the picture. Delivery in time for Christmas is guaranteed. Search Romaniac's Christmas Market to find out more. Meanwhile, our last live show of 2019 has just sold out. So if you were lucky enough to get a ticket, we'll see you at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday the 17th of December for a post-election post-mortem. Remember, Patreon supporters always get first dibs on tickets and a discount. And we're about to announce our first show of 2020. No spoilers, but it looks like Ian is heading north again. (laughs) Search Patreon Romaniacs and sign up for as little as $2 a month. You'll get early bird notifications of live shows, a discount, and of course, all our famous other benefits. Romaniacs, where every Friday is a Black Friday. 
we're at the halfway point in the general election campaign. Not long to go now. Mog has been grounded by Nanny. Dominic Raab <laughs> is under pressure in Escher and Walton after asking a Hustings crowd whether they wanted Brexit done, only to be told in no cer- certain terms that they very much do not. <laughs> and following Corbyn and Johnson's face-to-face debate last Tuesday, they joined the leaders of the Lib Dems and the SNP for a question time special on Friday. For Jo Swinson, it was her first proper introduction to the viewing public. In how did that go? Because the Lib Dems seem to have shifted their tactics away from campaigning with Swinson as a central figure and a potential PM, and focusing instead of depriving Boris Johnson of his majority. Was it a mistake for them to to push Swinson in that way as kind of a superstar when actually her poll ratings, approval ratings, seem to have plummeted? Well, they didn't know, I think, at that stage that people wouldn't like her quite so much. And she's having a really, really difficult campaign. And look, I think she's made lots of tactical errors. I think she's made some presentational errors. I think when you're trying to come across as the grown-up, mature sort of party, you need to sort of act that way. But I have to say... I'm starting to feel like there's a real disconnect between the extent of people's disillusionment with her and her performance. And it's quite hard. You have to sort of sit there and be like, well, what is the reasons for it? And it's very hard not to just get to the place where you're like, well, she's a, she's a young woman. Well, because, I, I, yeah, well, but some of the some of the focus group comments were like sort of bossy school marmish, And it was just like, this is mm-hmm. a woman. I wonder yeah, where that shit's coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sort of... Uh, uh, I also I get a bit irritated when they're like, oh, well, they're all so rubbish. You know, Boris Johnson, this Jeremy Corbyn, this. And just, I don't think she's performed very well, but I am not going to in the scale of rubbish things in this world. She does not deserve inclusion with Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson as people, regardless of anything else about the party. So I'm starting to get quite uncomfortable. Nevertheless, you can't get past the fact she is polling really badly. That was a fucking brutal moment for her during that question time thing. And that you know, some of that at least is legitimate and comes from, from the revoke policy, which at the time I thought would work better than it did for her core group. I mean, at the time we would talk about revoke quite a bit. You remember that petition had happened. We thought, well, this is the group she's aiming for. It helps to move, you know, between window. Blah, blah, blah. That isn't really the way it's panned out. It's panned out that it, it seems to be pretty fucking unpopular. Nemi, it is interesting looking back over things that we've said before. Um, that we might wish we hadn't said. But I definitely saw, uh, I saw on Twitter as well, a lot of people were just going, they almost got sort of bored of the push for a second referendum. And they were just like, for God's sake, why not go for, just go for a vote? That mm-hmm. would be the popular option. It did obviously get like a ton of signatures, mm-hmm. that petition. Um, and the old argument for, um, for the referendum, which also seems to have been one of the causes of the Russians and the People's Vote campaign, was that it can't just look as if it's a hardcore Remain attempt to overturn, you know, the result. It has to be kind of like, look, we're putting it back to the people, which was, of course, the original argument. And then people remain seem to get more and more sort of hard line. Uh, and I think we were kind of thinking, I guess that's, you know, this is, does seem to be the way that people are going. Um, and that's when the Lib Dems adopted that policy. And now I see some remains, possibly some of the same people, scolding them yep. and going, well, it's just undemocratic. You went too far. Uh, Do you think they're feeling a bit like that they just got sort of swept up in what they thought the new Remainer consensus was back then? I think most people are just very inconsistent with their political views. I think I think that's just human nature. Yeah. You know, the same people that, you know, want to save fluffy animals are often the same people that want to bring back capital punishment, right? That when when people answer the where are you on the political spectrum quizzes, you know, most people are just pretty inconsistent. And I think that's almost certainly true of a lot of these remainers. You know, they will one day hold one view and, and the next another. On specifically on the policy, 
I think the time for the Lib Dems to go for Revoke was when they were at 8% in the polls, and that would have helped them out. Last autumn conference, which is the one where they adopted the policy for Revoke, they were at 20% in the polls, and it was a completely different era for them, and I don't think they needed to do it then. I think the point that ought to have been made wasn't the democratic legitimacy point of, well, well, if I'm Prime Minister, I will have the democratic mandate to revoke because that is exactly the... We're going to have to use that argument against Boris Johnson in a few weeks' time if he is, you know, PM, and we are going to have to try and delegitimise him. It should have, you know, been much more about I cannot, in good conscience stand in front of a nation and say that Brexit is good for it. And what I think, to to Ian's point about um, presentational issues for, for Joe Swinson, I think it's too late for them to, to recoil from revoke. I don't think that is the right thing for them yeah, to yeah. do now. But what you've got to do is bed in and do it passionately. And if you're going to do it, stick to it and you stand there and you absolutely speak from the heart and you give an incredibly impassioned speech about why stopping Brexit was the best thing for the country and why any form of Brexit is so dreadful and I couldn't in good conscience advocate blah, 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 blah. And then maybe pivot to in the situation where, you know, the... Johnson is denied a majority and that's what this election is about, it's about denying him we'll make sure that in any referendum there will be a strong Remain voice and the Lib Dems with their history of being pro-European will be you know, amongst the mm. best placed people to do that I mean also the, the, the pattern uh, in elections with a couple of notable exceptions has been that the Lib Dems will be riding high and then they will be squeezed and shrink back down often to single figures and so um, if the revoke policy results in them settling around 12 or 13 percent, I don't think that's necessarily uh, they will look at that as a failure. That may have been a really good defence, um, uh, you know, from where they're standing, instead of just letting Labour shrink them down to 8 percent again. Well, there's a problem, isn't there, by the way, that the, the, the character of that policy is not the same as the character that they're overall trying to put across. Yeah, overall, yeah. they're trying to put across, we're the sensible... We're the sensible. Centrist, you know, it was fiscally conceived, you know, blah, 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 but we're caring, we're basically Tony Blair, you know, in 1997. However, the revoke policy is selected specifically because it's supposed to just really earn new hearing rights among, yeah. you know, part of the yeah, Remain yeah, yeah. movement. And so that really matches up in a difficult way. And because it's their most prominent policy, it serves to diminish the overall message that they're trying to put across. And there's also a sense from people that they feel it's uh, instinctively dishonest for a party to stand there that, you know, they know she has no chance of being elected prime minister. She knows she has no chance of being elected Prime Minister, but there she is telling just, them what she will do yeah, but when I just she's think elected that, I, I just, Prime Minister. I just think that's ridiculous, because any small party... You know what I mean? It's like the Green Manifesto is full of plans for the climate emergency. They, they're they're going to go, well, look, we're not going to... We're obviously not going to be in government, <laughs> so we just won't say <laughs> anything. We yeah. won't bother. You know, it's like you, you have to put in a manifesto as if you're going to be, obviously, then in the, the presentation of your next PM, that's going too far. But you're allowed to have a policy. Sure, but but the policy needs to be one that you can influence with a more limited number of MPs. So the Green Party will continue to argue in Parliament to do something about the climate emergency. But the Lib Dems, if they don't get a, an, an outright majority in the next election, they will pivot to supporting a second referendum. And that's where it right. seems a little bit... Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, all parties rule out coalitions before they enter into one. But Labour and the SNP, who uh, have put Brexit very prominently, stopping Brexit very prominently in their manifesto. And again, I heard them being criticised for like, well, you don't have the power to do it. It's like, mm. no, but they, they should still say that they want to. Um, are currently dancing around each other. Uh, and obviously Scottish independence would sort of be, a referendum would be on the table there. Do you expect to see any further softening towards Labour from the Lib Dems this side of the election? Or do you think that will all happen uh, Definitely not. After the night. Oh, it's all afterwards. Yes, she yeah. couldn't possibly. She can't say anything. And in fact, one of her great problems is, and this is not her fault, is that Jeremy Corbyn makes it harder for Joe Swinson to pick up votes yeah. in marginals with the Conservatives because people, you know, Tory Remainers, you know, look at Jeremy Corbyn and think, well, actually, that looks worse than a no-deal Brexit to me. So that becomes one of the main motivating factors and the things we hear again and again mm. here on the doorstep about Jeremy Corbyn is the word dangerous, you know, that he's dangerous for the country. So that makes her position much harder. She won't say anything good about Labour uh, until the election is over and then the truth is these parties are going to have to sit down if it is a hung parliament and they're going to have to work out because you know there may not be one vote on something like a budget or a queen's speech in order to do it well actually the queen's speech you could argue there is but there's certainly going to have to be can i generally get tenth poll items mm. of my legislative agenda through and you need to be able to demonstrate that you can do that if you're going to have even a minority government and that involves conversations with Nicola Sturgeon and Joe Swinson yeah. so they are I mean well, everything they're saying is fucking nonsense well staying with um, staying with Corbyn um, his Andrew Neil interview um was a, a bit of a mess, <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, there's lots to, 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 to rake over. Um, but let's focus on how he answered the question about being neutral in a referendum. Um, is it a sound policy really badly explained, or is it a bad policy? Because I was leaning towards the former. I was like, there is a way that you could answer this if you were good at interviews yeah. that would sound like much clearer and much more sort of... Um, you know, president. I mean, presidential is the wrong word here, but you know what I mean. It, it showed much more sort of leadership, um, but he just seemed to kind of like fumble the answer while saying very, it's very clear. Honestly, I, I think it's a perfectly fine policy. The thing is that you can't do it with his skills, and you can't do it at this point. Like if from the beginning, exactly. he had it's said, a great policy arrived at too late. By the wrong is person, what it is. really. Because yeah. I mean, by this stage, everyone, Remainers and Leavers, just treat him with abject suspicion. You know, you just think well, this guy's fucking, you know, skimming away behind the. God knows what he really thinks. He comes to it so late. I mean, if really quite early on, he'd been like, no, we're not going to go in for tribal warfare. I'm going to be statesman-like. The party will stand above all of this. (laughs) We will do this. Then I think, honestly, that that could be a really genuinely successful position from people who don't like the emotional noise of this debate and want to go back to that world where we weren't all trying to fucking kill each other all the time. And a correct position, importantly. A, a A position that arguably had Cameron adopted, we wouldn't be in this place where we are at all I don't know, I don't know, I could see you can go either way on that, but definitely I think it was doable and I don't think the, the policy itself in terms of the self-interest of the party, I think that could work I don't think it can work with him, not right now, and I think it should have been done earlier also, he doesn't have the mojo right now look at him now, compared no. to 2017, remember he was quite happy, he could feel that sense of support behind him, he would joke around during interviews, he was good with Paxman this time he looks harried, he looks paranoid, he looks like he's in the fucking trench. It's the return of Can I Finish yeah, exactly. Can I finish? Can I finish? And you're like, then that's when you know that he's kind of he's mm-hmm. rattled. Do, do we think, Alex, do you think that he was... Because there was all this talk of, like, we've been calling for an election for ages. It was very sort of... Everyone was very sort of gung-ho um, in the Corbyn circle yeah. and the momentum. It's just like, bring it on. Here we go. Um, do you think that that was um, a mistake? Or do you think that 
even if even if the election came a few months later, the, the, the problems would be. No, I think it was a, a grave error. But right. you know, the moment the moment Tony Blair has said this is a great big elephant trap, don't don't fall into it. It was almost guaranteed because I'll show that they you. were going to run enthusiastically towards that big trap. I mean. Um, I, uh, not to not to say I think the way it, the interview has been amplified by selective editing afterwards is an entirely fair one. I think Andrew Neil was very very naughty actually in that interview, in that he was framing the argument in a way that suggested Corbyn had never apologised so far, and that is a lie. Yeah, but you just do it again. Yes. It's not hard. No, no, but the point is, how many times do you do it again? Do you do it every time you're asked? In a asked? big set-piece well, interview yeah, before an election. That, that's when you that do it again. But that becomes the conversation. The point is, by doing it again, you accept the premise. And Andrew Neil had, had built the premise into the question that Corbyn had never apologised by saying, would you like to take this opportunity to, to apologise to the Jewish community? No, it's subtle, it, but it's there. Uh, and it's... And I, mean, I think Andrew it's Neil, journalistically unethical. Andrew Neil's interview style is almost as if he goes to your like worst arch enemies and asks them what question should I ask him or which question do you think would be the the worst one for me to ask him. Mean, he is in, he, that is his art. He's, Not with everyone. Not with everyone. Almost everyone. I was pretty rough on Boris Johnson before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. He's pretty, I think he's he's pretty fair game on that. But also just like just say I've really apologised, and now I will do it again. Like, mm. If I've lost your trust, I I'm. I, I just. Yeah. He just didn't look prepared that. at all. He was just a bit like with all the can I finish? It's can like it's like do you have you ever seen an Andrew Neil interview? Do you actually think yeah, what yeah. he does is he answers a question and then he lets you go? What I would like to say instead, and just avoid yeah. the question. It's like well, that's not what he does. C it's not somebody being rude at a dinner party. As much as I agree that it wasn't a good interview, the things that I think Labour have done incredibly well at in the last week are their social media content mm -hmm. is absolutely superb. They must mm. have got a new agency or something because it is phenomenally good um, and far better than anything they've been pumping out. And then today's press stuff that they've done around the NHS and the redacted documents and, yeah, yeah, you know, show, that, that has been incredible. And to have actual doctors there handing things out to the, the, the press that was mm. sitting there waiting, you know, is, is great. So I don't think we can discount Labour's prospects purely on the basis of that. Oh, no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I just thought it was worth talking about as we will talk we about, about the next interviews that Andrew Neil does. If indeed Boris Johnson ever uh, signs if, up for the man. Yeah. He's, mm. uh, yeah. Um, our, namely, our recent guest, Sir John Curtis, expects another hung parliament at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, it's likely the election... Well, not likely, but it's, it's very possible that the election won't make things any clearer. Mm. Um are you Bears of Britain sort of <laughs> doing oh, any contingency pl planning, you know, for another election? I mean, the, which oh is the most. God. I'm really sorry for mentioning Not another one. the most. That's my best friend from Bristol. Soul crushing. It's very good. It's very good, yeah. It goes a full octave. <laughs> Not another one. Can you, ima how can you imagine how. At home practicing <laughs> that. It's quite disturbing. Quite Can a you lot. imagine? <laughs> <laughs> how. Um, Am I how cross planning? would people be? Like how? Because they were saying the mm. turnout's going to be a problem. A lot of people are just really, really annoyed mm -hmm. by this election time of year, all the tone of it. Um, to give them another one. I mean, is that something that you're sort of at least bearing in mind that may happen? <laughs> When you're doing campaigning and advocacy, you have to win the current fight. 
and you have to be a hundred percent committed to that and the mistake that i think campaign organizations can make is lifting their head up and looking to the future mm-hmm. in business you should always be doing that you should always be doing long-term strategic planning and constant rolling forecasts and the rest of it in campaigning that is death you win the here and now so the short answer is i am not thinking much beyond the 13th of december at all because i know that if i do i'm in danger zone and we just got to put absolutely everything at that it's my job to keep my team and the wider remain community as much as they'll listen to me focused on that um but i do agree that you know people are absolutely sick to the back teeth of it and we need to change the electoral system and then everything would be a little bit better um (laughs) very quick one if there was a hung parliament do you think we'd have the government in place by christmas would the negotiations have to be speeded uh, the last, while last time. the last two lots long took uh, um, respectively eleven and fourteen days, so the smart money would be on no. What really makes government work, and why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change in a matter of minutes. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. So in the last week, we've seen the publication of the Labour, Tory, Lib Dem and SNP manifestos. Um, not going to go through them all now. <laughs> um, the information is available on the World Wide Web. Um, Ian, the Tory approach this time around appears to be don't make too much noise, don't promise anything you haven't before. It's a very slimline manifesto. It's not exactly a bold vision of the future. Do you think there's much there for swing voters who care about anything other than Brexit? No, there really isn't anything at all. And partly because they don't want to shoot themselves in the foot and partly because, you know, they learnt the lessons of Theresa May in 2017 when um, her sort of social care policy just um, blew up in her face. It's also, I mean, they took on the lesson... I mean, remember, they've become the Brexit Party in a variety of ways. One of them is the Brexit Party put forward in their manifesto for the European elections, said, oh, we'll fucking give you something afterwards, you know, if we feel like sending it to you. And that works quite well for the Tories because what you're trying to do is not run on the basis of detail. You're trying to run on the basis of, you know, easily repeatable statements that have two or three very short words in them. In other words, get Brexit done, which is a falsehood, but it doesn't matter because that's basically the entirety of their campaign is just saying that phrase. So it, it is it is post post it's not even post truth politics is it it's like post content politics it's basically branding instead of policy we don't really know i mean the thing is it does, i suppose it does take away some attack lines because they haven't given us an idea of what then their next government would be and so that's why the kind of corbyn's press conference this morning was like was was a good idea because it focuses on one of the the strong things that you can say because it's related to brexit mm. that you know the nhs you know open its markets in the event of a uk us trade yeah. deal because yeah, yeah. that's something you can say it is very likely will happen but there aren't policies you don't want to attack having more police and nurses even if the figures are mendacious and they're a lot of the time just replacing people they had previously cut mm-hmm. but you can't actually attack that so it does give you fewer lines you're almost attacking the vibe of the Tories and what you expect them to do mm-hmm. rather than anything they've said they will do yeah this is 
There's almost nothing there. I mean, I was talking to a guy who analyzes drug policy today. And I mean, drug policy, drug reform guys are really excited because basically almost every party, apart from the Conservatives, has a liberal package on it. You know, Lib Dems talking about decriminalization, even Labour's one, so having a royal commission. It looks, it looks fucking great. Like that debate is shifting really quickly. And then you look at the Tory one, and it's like, so what's their policy? Is that, no, it just sort of generally says, not, not keen on drugs. Same on, <laughs> same on LGBT stuff. You know, they've got like two tiny little throwaway things. We'll have, a, we'll have a conference about it. And, you know, obviously, all the others have got really great stuff in it like you know allowing um uh, people that have had um you know same-sex relationships to donate blood and all those sorts of things that at the moment are sort of illiberal stuff in our in our uh, you know legislation so yeah it's it's thin on absolutely everything um so Naomi, while um the tories basically have no policies labor have all the policies mm-hmm. um, <laughs> On our sister podcast on the House, David Hennick said Labour basically throwing the kitchen sink at this manifesto. Pretty much anything that's come up at a Labour meeting in the past four years <laughs> has gone into it. Um, are there just, and I like a lot of them, mm. um, I mean, pretty much all of them, um, are there but are there just too many for people to get their heads around? Do you need to go to people with, you know, when they're going into the voting booth, they need to think of like one or two particular mm-hmm. things rather than like 30? So I think most people will only ever really... I mean, most people won't look at a manifesto. Right? What? <laughs> what? Yeah, sorry to break it to you. Um, I don't think we can criticise the Tories for having too little content and simultaneously criticise Labour for having too much. Right, no, it's the Goldilocks approach. <laughs> you want a manifesto that's just right. <laughs> because, I, look, most people won't read it at all. Um, those who have a view about what the parties stand for will probably say, oh, well, the the Tories want Brexit, the Lib Dems don't, and if we're lucky, they'll say Labour want to look after the NHS. Hmm. But most other most voters are not going to go into the polling station having cared about what's in it. That said, I think there are some really interesting things in the Labour one that are switching the minds of uh, people that wouldn't ordinarily want to vote for them. And in particular, I'm talking about the WASPy women. So the, the women born in the 1950s who are being screwed That's over That's not in the manifesto, the though, is it? It is. It's this £30,000 windfall for women. Oh, they... I thought they announced it after the... Yeah, but either way, it's it doesn't matter. It's, a... right, right, it's, okay, it's an yeah. election policy. And there are, you know... Uh, w- Blue rinse conservative voting women hmm. who are now thinking, oh, hello, £30,000 windfall that I could leave my grandkids or could help me through, you know, my old age, mm. that are now, you know, beginning to get quite Theresa excited May. about. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> so, you, yeah. Do you think that's the one then? If, if you say, okay, what's, what's Labour stand for? What's going to really entice people? Okay, protecting the NHS, second referendum. Do you think the WASPy pledge? is the sort of closest they've got to another breakthrough policy because I mean you know whatever you think of the broadband one that doesn't seem like one that in itself is going to um yeah but the two I mean the two parties are not starting from the same position that's that's the point so how could they have um even similar manifestos when you know one is between 11 and sort of 18 points ahead 
depending on what you look like on the pole. It would be like expecting a football team to have the same formation if they're three nil ahead with ten minutes to go, or three nil behind with ten minutes to go. So Ian is um, loving the football analogy. I love that analogy. But I actually la- understood that. Yeah, but Labour yeah. is throwing everything at it Do because they need Tottenham a miracle. They they right. need a massive push. I'm moment. just asking: Does that and, work? And, and, just and, throwing everything at it work? I think so because because I think largely a group of groups of people are primarily self-interested. So even if they don't know anything else about the manifesto, WASPy women will be aware they're making that promise to them. Right. And small tech firms, even if there's nothing else, if they want to, you know, relocate in Scotland, they will be aware of the broadband okay. infrastructure promise. So yeah. I think it does work. Cool. And I mean, on the polls, good, they seem to be surging. Good, so. good news. Um, Namely, Lib Dems have based their spending plans on a £50 billion remain bonus if they revoke Article 50. Uh, They say that's a low estimate of how much the economy could grow if we remain. Um, Economists sort of say it could be quite a lot smaller. Um, I mean, having been um, fairly cross about writing £350 million on the side of a bus, (laughs) is it... should Should we be sort of pleased or suspicious that they've come up with this kind of... this this sort of big figure, which essentially covers a lot of their their, their spending plans. It means they're not going to have to sort of... There's some tax rises, but it means, you know, they're not going to have to put up taxes elsewhere. What should we make of the £50 figure? Um, Thankfully, the Institute for Fiscal Studies will answer that question for us. Um, And by the time this podcast goes out, they will have had their big press conference where they will have deconstructed the Mm. three big manifestos and, uh, you know, uh, done the maths on whether it really adds up. Um, so thankfully, you know, we've got that coming and I would want to wait and see what they say rather than my own back of the fag packet calculations. Of course, it's all about opportunity cost. It's very, very difficult to model this stuff. But we do know that all of the government's impact assessments show that we are going to be worse off by this amount. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to to reverse that and say, well, this is this is the boon. Time to talk about something other than the election because we miss our regulars so much when they aren't here. We've just read something from Ros Taylor's LSE Brexit Brain Trust, a column by Simon Glendinning about how Brexit could change Britain's attitudes to the legacy of the empire. Naomi, Donald Tusk has called Brexit the real end of the British empire. Um, what does this sort of country become... He also makes the argument, Simon Gundinning, you know, that kind of we'd found a new role in in Europe Mm. and sort of helped us cope Mm. with with the end of the empire. Mm. What sort of left for us without the EU or the empire? I'm presuming even uh, Marc Francois isn't going to literally bring back the British empire. I can't believe you said his name wrong. Oh, Frank Mansoir. I can't believe Frank Mansoir. He's not single-handedly going to bring back the British empire. So... You'll give so, it a good try. What's, give it a good old blighty <laughs> try. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, what did you make of the piece? What, what, does, does it suggest what would come next? I think that we'll be left isolated and humiliated. I think all Remainers assume that. Um, we're already pretty humiliated internationally anyway, um, with most modern you know, countries looking at us with absolute despair and you know, this act of self-harm. And I think Ingrid's talked about it quite a bit on the previous shows about this sort of lack of 
lack of moment of reckoning for the sins of empire that has given us this absolute exceptionalism um probably coupled with you know being an island that means we just haven't atoned for our sins in the way most european and um, other european union um countries that were former uh, have, they, have they done that because i don't know for example like in the belgian education system because nobody was nobody behaved more appallingly than belgium in the congo mm-hmm. now is that something that belgian society wrestles with is it a particularly british thing to kind of not think about the appalling things you did in the in the colony i mean i don't think they have maps painted in different colors you know map where you know, pink countries where you had the empire yeah I, we we did have a particularly egregious approach to it and certainly i mean you know my own education was just littered with ridiculous views of, of you know I, I I remember teachers saying oh you know we we gave them sewers and we gave them roads and it's just dreadful stuff um Ian Labour wants to teach a less sanitized version of it in schools which is hence leave.eu using um my book cover without permission um and <laughs> Richard Bergen elsewhere mentioned that pupils um should learn more about Jewishness and anti-semitism because I mean it is true that some people literally do not know what an anti-Semitic trope is and sometimes they use one without meaning to be consciously <laughs> offensive. Um, do you think as long as, you know, I mean, there's a sort of pushback as if, like, we're going to be drilling into people's heads, you know, one single orthodoxy, but as long as it's still, you know, there's still debate and it doesn't just kind of flip around and say that, you know, that, you know, just turn everything upside down. I mean, do you think that we should be thinking more about education, about what we're telling people about history and the way that politics works to kind of try and create, you know, not create, that sounds sinister, um, but try and raise a, a, just a better informed generation. Oh, but there's always values in, in education, especially when you talk about history education, right? Like when I was taught about the Chartists, I wasn't taught about it like, oh, these guys really fucked up and that stuff's really alienating. The obvious message was these guys were basically right. You know, this was a very positive movement. If you got taught about the suffragettes or, you know, American civil rights movement, it's not taught as if what a tragedy these things were. <laughs> there's clearly values imbued in that. I mean, it, it would be nice if we had a more complex view of British history as well so as well as being more critical of the things that we fucked up it would be quite nice if we could look at the bits that we do that we we did something very impressive like the english civil war which i frankly can't stop banging on about but seems like a moment of this extraordinary creation of basically sort of the the sort of really quite embryonic forms of sort of british liberal democracy are there in you know hundreds of a hundred years before the french revolution or the american revolution and we don't talk about that part either and so there's this really quite sort of simplistic disconnected jangled up stories they tend not to teach history as one linear line it tends to be bit here bit there so people don't have a sense of how it all connects up and to teach that with some values some humility but also some pride in the bits that one could legitimately be proud about seems to me like a very good idea but instead we're just like bit of victorians over here bit of world war ii bit of hitler that's your job <laughs> mate out you fucking go but it's amazing how everybody i think pretty much everyone teaches the holocaust and yet there is still this enormous ignorance about yeah, anti-semitism true. yeah you know and almost people mm. do come out thinking the only version of anti-semitism is is literally concentration camps mm-hmm. and swastikas, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And I actually thought that was, I'm not the biggest fan of Richard Bergen, um, but I thought that was a that was a worthwhile idea he raised. Mm. Um, Alex, this I'm Glendinning also argues that we still don't know it really if Leave One because Remain was fragmented or because people did genuinely understand the EU's actual role in Britain and vice versa and and just wanted out of it. 
Do you do you do you agree? Because he was saying in three years later, it's just like we don't really know. No, I um, I think uh, I, I mean I think voters are more instinctive than that. I don't I don't think you could ever um, say okay, let's run an education program on this issue for the next ten years and then go to this super educated. You know, there's mm. still there's still a sort of trend. They they remind me of the way starlings move in a group. You know, where suddenly they change direction and they they form in a different um, way. But the reason it happened, I in, just instinctively, I think. Um, the underdog in any direct PR vote on an issue, I think the underdog stands a very good chance because I think people like to support the the, the sort of the version that's less likely to win. I think it makes them feel more rebellious. And we're in a country where there is no rebellion right now. Your vote doesn't matter. So you give people an opportunity where the vote does ma- matter and you tell them very firmly, now don't vote for X, and you can almost guarantee what's going to happen. Yeah, it's like don't press this button, yeah. Dougal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, well, they'll they'll be happy because then Britain will be turned into an underdog for the foreseeable future. <laughs> now it's time for the most exciting countdown-based political point-making segment in the world of British podcasting. Gone in sixty seconds. Oh, fucking yeah. Exciting. Yes, no, it's fantastic. Every week, yeah. one of our panellists is given a lever argument in a single minute to find those fish, put them in a barrel and shoot them all. Ian, it's your turn this week. Your argument is voting Tory means we can get Brexit done and move on. I've heard somebody say this. Blonde guy. Uh, you have 60 seconds now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's bullshit. Um, so you're going to do four things in a trade deal. So you're going to do work out what it is that you want. You're going to negotiate it. It needs to get ratified, and then it needs to get implemented. Now, I don't see any real evidence of them being able to do the first one in the current timing that is available, which is having to make a decision on extending transition in July with a deadline for the extension in December. If they did manage to do that, there is a tiny chance they might be able to negotiate it. They certainly cannot ratify it, which needs to go out to all of the member states' parliaments, including some regional parliaments. They certainly don't think they're going to be able to implement it. What I think will happen instead is this, is that he will put himself on the line to desperately try to seal and end the negotiation by the end of December. He will then extend and he will describe the extension as... An implementation period, which is an old phrase that Theresa May, you may remember, was very, very fond of, and then it will go on for two years. So even in that scenario, where he would have fucked our leverage out of sight and accepted anything that you give him, we would still, I think, be leading for another three years on this shit at the minimum. Done. Now it's time for part two of our Ask Romaniac selection special, starting with a chewy gammon steak of a question. Jonathan Little asks, while much attention is focused on Boris Johnson's insistence that he will not extend the Brexit transition period when it expires at the end of 2020, is there not an alternative scenario to a no deal at that stage? Might a new agreement with the EU be possible, dare I say it, perhaps under GATT24, that establishes an interim framework replicating all the conditions of transition, but which allows Johnson to claim that he has not actually extended it? Yeah, that's just, that's basically what I just said. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, it won't be GATT24. Um, I... 
Look, even that is difficult because the moment that you are actually negotiating the trade deal, you are suddenly going to be lobbied hard. Hard from the right wing of the Conservative Party, which is basically now the whole fucking Conservative Party, and then from business. And business do not have the same views on all of this stuff. In different areas, they'll want different things, especially about sort of services penetration, especially around customs facilitation, goods, tariffs, maybe mutual recognition. It'll be complex, and industries themselves, you've got lots of pent-up lobbying funds, we're suddenly going to unleash that shit hard because they know this will define you for a generation so just making up your mind as to which way you're going to go on this stuff will be hard let alone negotiating it let alone thinking what is the stuff we have to give in response to that that is inevitably going to fuck some other sector that you have with all of those dominoes basically falling all over you day after day after day that'll be really difficult however it is at least conceivable that you could do that by December 2020, in which case I think he would do that thing of rebranding it as implementation. What is not conceivable, absolutely not conceivable, is the idea that you could also get it ratified and implemented by the end. That simply will not happen. I'm very prepared to say that. I think you've got probably a one chance in 10 of being able to complete the negotiations uh, by the end of 2020 if you keep it very, very, very bare bones. In that case, he'll he'll go, I think, for the kind of system that he's suggesting. It ain't going to happen. It's unlikely, but at least that part's possible. It, and it doesn't matter, actually, because, you know, if the Cameron coalition taught us anything is that um, if effectively you can do whatever you want for four years as long as you kind of make up for it and put out the right message for the last year of your government before you go to an election. So I think he's internal target, as opposed to what he advertises, will be to get it all done by the next election. I think that's the real target. You know, he can then stand in front of an electorate and say, look, I promised you it may have taken a little bit longer, but I promised you it would get done and it got done. If if we end up in the next election still in some sort of transitional period, however he names it, he will be very vulnerable to attack. I, 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 I want to believe that that's true because I think that would be a much better situation for us to be in. What concerns me is that he, the, the internal dynamic in the Tory party will force him to stick to that no extension Maybe. sort of thing. And if he does, what you've just done is basically handed your negotiating partner huge leverage over you because they can suddenly go, well, here's the fucking deal. I mean, we've basically written yeah, yeah, yeah. it. So sign on the fucking line and you'll be able to survive. You Matt on Patreon asks, from a Remain tactical voting perspective, are there any constituencies in Scotland that shouldn't vote SNP? Naomi. Yes. Um, and you, if you visit getvoting.org uh, and plug in a Scottish postcode, it will either tell you it's a Remain on Remain fight, so take your pick from the you know Greens, Labour, Lib Dems and SNP, or it will say, actually, you're in a seat where the Tories are at risk of winning and it will give a recommendation. Um, but won't that recommendation always be the SNP? No, no, it won't. So in Edinburgh South, for instance, it would definitely be Labour. Right. Uh, in oh, East wow. Dunbartonshire, it would definitely be Liberal Democrats. So, yeah, it's, mm. it's worth going and, and just Great. checking it out. Great. Adam Dadeby says crystal ball time should the worst happen and there was a viable majority Tory Brexit government our formal exit takes place on first 31st of January is there any hope for the rapid formation of a rejoin movement will it depend on the stability of that government um, could Brexit fundamentalist MPs be our saviour once again by fucking things up from inside <laughs> uh, Alex uh, possibly <laughs> but, I mean, who knows? Uh, I, I think uh, um, there are two ways to interpret it. If if Johnson gets a, a sizable majority, 
Um, there's a school of thought that says he will try to marginalise the more moderate Tories and go for a harder Brexit, but there's an equally valid school of thought that says he will try to marginalise the real loons on the right of the party and go for actually a slightly more sensible um, Brexit. You know, the, you, you don't know, and, and the, the, the reason we don't know is because he doesn't know, because one thing that's become abundantly clear is that they're playing this day by day. So it depends on what majority they get and who exactly are the MPs, yeah. and from that they will carve out yeah. the strategy. Daniel Green says, if the Tories don't get a majority, the Lib Dems next Tory independents are adamant they won't put Corbyn into number 10. Assuming the Lib Dems would support a minority government led by someone other than Corbyn, stroke McDonald, they've said, uh, Labour has to choose between being out of power with Corbyn or in power with somebody, they say, a more moderate figure. These are, this is Daniel Green's words. What would it choose? And do you think, and I would also like to challenge the premise of the question, do you think that they would insist on a moderate or is it just not Corbyn? Because I quite like, I think McDonald's having a, I think he, he's looking pretty pretty mm-hmm. good, but maybe not to a Lib Dem. Yeah, to an extent, all of the taint is with Corbyn, yeah. really. Like, I mean, even on the anti-Semitism stuff, you don't feel like it's really stuck necessarily <clears throat> to McDonald or something no. like that. No. Um, and I think that goes for most of the of the front bench. I don't think that Labour would ever allow themselves to be seen in the position where they kill their own leader because another party has demanded them to. However, what is possible is that Jeremy Corbyn himself would just be like, I'm fucking <laughs> pretty tired now. <laughs> you know, this is not if I'm the only thing knocking this. I mean, that's conceivable. I don't think that's what would happen, but I do think that's a conceivable outcome. It's certainly more conceivable than Labour assassinating him on Lib Dem orders. <laughs> when, you, when you put it like that. <laughs> well, she has said she'll nuke, so. <laughs> Might Joe Swinson nuke Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> She goes, in one hot second. (laughs) Andrew Purcell says, if election results in little change to actual seat share of the main parties, will the election still have been worthwhile for Johnson, given it has provided him with opportunity to replace more sensible centrists with MPs who are more supportive of his hard-right Brexit plan? And does the same hold true for Labour, given the replacement of centrist candidates with those more Corbyn-friendly? So say we end up with exactly the same number of seats, will the leaders think, well, it was worth it to sort of purify the party? No. Absolutely not. He will have gotten off to a failure. It will be an absolute disaster if if uh, Johnson fails to get a majority even by one MP, this will be it for Johnson. He will then be a dead man walking for the next two years until someone basically slits his throat, politically speaking. The language of the metaphors are getting very, very violent. <laughs> Politics is a very violent, uh, very violent I mean, it's quite... This kind of stuff would just get you suspended from Twitter for at least 24 hours. Sam Potts asks, does the panel think there is any possibility of Johnson agreeing to a people's vote as the price of some sort of supply and confidence agreement with one or more of the opposition parties? Naomi, lots of suppositions in there. (laughs) (laughs) Given it's Johnson, of course, anything is possible because the man flip-flops all over the place and can't be relied upon to say anything. But I'm going to say no because he would have his tacticals um, hung, drawn and quartered by (laughs) (laughs) the What's happening to us? It's only like week three, isn't it? Uh, I mean, we've we've stabbed them, we've (laughs) used them, we've hung, drawn and quartered them. And it would also involve this this putative supplying confidence agreement would also involve the Lib Dems helping the Tories again. Remember that 1922 committee has been reset. Theresa May is not the leader anymore. There is nothing to stop those letters going in to the chairman of the, you know, against him and I think 
think they would. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, I just don't see how he rides out. Uh, Gavin Hogg hopefully asks how likely do you think it is that Johnson will do something that will sabotage his own campaign I'd say such as lying or or refusing to discuss an affair <laughs> alleged uh, Ian um, I mean you know could the... he blow is there anything that he could do to blow himself up sending bits of flesh bone and skin <laughs> flying into the air like oh, a right, like a bomb in an abattoir. <laughs> is there? Well, I'm trying to basically get ahead of you guys. Yeah, getting in the mood. Is That's there, the spirit. Is there in. any way that he could he could explode like a flesh pinata? <laughs> That's gross. Quite, quite a dreadful image. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, look, yes, at any time he can fuck up and he fucks up an awful lot, which is partly why you actually haven't seen very much of him over this election. You know, quick jump in here, quick, you know, visit to a hospital very early on, out you go. It's like this idea that he was going to go out there and just through his sheer charisma, just, you know, bludgeon Britain into submission just isn't there because actually the sort of you know they're they're in the business of running what is ultimately a very conservative campaign ironically more conservative than the campaign that Theresa may ran yeah. that's because boris johnson is a conservative right. <laughs> he doesn't want you to know that but he is and you can tell because of all the conservative things Richard Burke. <laughs> I said something nice about him earlier, so yes. it all balances but out. Yeah, look, it is always, always possible. He isn't very good at this. He is a bit of a live wire. It could go wrong at any time. There's still one more debate to come, and, you know, maybe or maybe not that interview with Andrew Neil. You never know. That would be fun. <laughs> Finally, and it's one for you, which is a version of the of the lament that I see a lot okay. uh, at the moment. From Kit All Winter, why do you think people are actually voting Tory? After nine years of austerity, collapsing public services, chaos at the top, resulting in a gaff-prone Johnson being in charge of an incompetent and venal administration. These are Kit's views. How are they so bloody... And also mine. Also Also everyone in this room. How are they so bloody popular? Just dot, 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 heavy sigh. How are the Tory numbers so high? Um, Because they've had the good sense to hang a big under-new man Management sign in their window, and Labour haven't had the same good sense to do that. It's as simple as that. I did see, like I said, versions of this on Twitter, and it was quite. It was. It, it, there's something kind of uh, darkly funny about the fact that it's basically just going for the many, not the few. Why are the many so fucking stupid? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this, this sort of absolute uncomprehending fury, mm. and, and I do. You know, I do get the feeling yeah. behind that yeah, yeah, yeah. because you're just like look at them uh, but at the same time if you're like if you really really do not understand why voters are voting the way they are you're not going to do very well in politics I read a beautiful Turkish proverb over the weekend that said the woods kept voting for the axe because the axe convinced them that their handle is made of wood, wood. and it's just like them mm-hmm. very good <laughs> that's good well done, Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> All of you. All of you. Not you, except Erdogan. Not you. <laughs> the country of the birds. <laughs> All of them. 
that's it for Ask Romaniacs this week. Once the election is over and things return to something like normality, we'll be bringing back the exclusive Ask Romaniacs episodes with Patreon backers. So sign up today to avoid missing out on having your questions answered. Just a quick reminder of our sister podcast on the house, where campaigning Lib Dem candidates Philip Lee and Sam Jima meet friends and rivals for a pint after politics every week. On the latest episode, Sam was joined by UK trade policy expert David Hennig. David used to advise on trade policy in the government, so he knows his onions, as well as dozens of other edible imports and exports. <laughs> There's a new On the House out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a listen. haven't seen any advanced economy that whose entire trading future is sort of on the block in the way that Brexit would put our entire trading future and relationships on the block, having to start from scratch. So at some point, the reality has got to um, intrude on this kind of um, get Brexit done dream that uh, Johnson is selling the electorate. When does that happen? Well, it could be a while, um, because it could be that you blame everything on the EU from here on in for the next few years and say, we would have had that great deal, but the EU blocked us from having that great deal. So if you come back to experts again, those pesky experts were, t- were, uh, were, were, t- were telling us that what they were telling us was wrong. It was actually all the EU's fault. When does that reality come in? Look, I'm really interested in theoretical point of view. What happens to the political narrative after after Brexit? It's all Brexit, Brexit, get Brexit done at the moment. What happens then if we do if we do leave? What's the do we start actually talking about the bigger picture of well what's going to happen to the country? Or do we forget about all of this and just sort of bump 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 along? Um, I don't know, therefore, when reality sets in. Do we get into a big grind behind the scenes of negotiation that ultimately goes on for years and years and years, never really satisfactory concludes, and it takes years as well for politicians to actually want to talk about Europe ever again, at which point some people might start saying, hang on a minute, maybe maybe we were missold. We're approaching the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule. Every week we pick something new to place in the capsule to remind us of the good old days. This week, Alex Andrea gets another go. Yay! Um, I've decided to put the time capsule yeah. in the time capsule, <laughs> thus creating a break in the time-space continuum <laughs> that will swallow us. That's some Christopher Nolan shit. Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah. OK. Is, what was the name of the film? Uh, Inception. Interstellar. Conception. That was a very different (laughs) fucking film. (laughs) (laughs) That's a porn version called Conception. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Alex. That was real classy. This week's foreign language clip is in Croatian from listener Paveo Lerotic. First of all, some UK politicians spoke very quickly, especially of responsibility, and I hope that we will see that a tu razinu i da Ian Duncan Smith i Jacob Rees-Mogg više nikad neće biti izabrani. That means I always respected UK politics for high levels of personal responsibility and I hope we will return to that and that Ian Duncan Smith and Jacob Rees-Mogg won't be elected ever again. <laughs> um, there is a chance, isn't there, Naomi, that, that, that uh, John Rodroid, Steve Baker, Zach Goldsmith and Dominic Raab might not be re-elected. There is, especially with tactical voting. 
<laughs> Exciting. You like tactical voting, don't you? <laughs> I wish we didn't have to do it. I wish we had an electoral system that meant what's we didn't the, have to. What's the website? Getvoting.org. Just think. What of does it tell you to do? <laughs> <laughs> it tells you how to vote tactically, and your just seat think, stop the Conservatives. Oh, oh. Just think of Rob's face. Can you imagine? Oh yeah, yeah. Honestly, it'll, it'll so take good. him two months to realise. He'll just keep turning up. Just keep turning up to work just with a briefcase, sitting in the, sitting in the toilet, Square. eating his sandwiches. <laughs> Please do send us your bits of wisdom, encouragement and or abuse in the many languages of the EU. Record something good and short on your phone and send it to info at romaniacs.com. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Naomi, Alex and Ian. Finally, some big news from our friends, Corner Shop, who provide our theme tune, Demon is a Monster. They're releasing their first new album in eight years in March, and it's called <laughs> it's called England is a Garden, uh, which we imagine will contain a few Romaniac-style themes. Visit ampleplay.co.uk to find out more and get a free download of our theme tune. And it's time to thank our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to John Park, Nathan Williams, Brendan Conn, Tim Deal, Thomas, Nancy Pickering, Victoria Whitehead and Nicola. And many thanks from me to Paul Sermon, David Matheson, Nick Alston, Ron Clark, Justin Gwades wright Brian Chan, Nick Avery and Nick Carthy. Hello and thank you from me to John Park, Sam Carson, Gary Abbott, Peter Reed, Phil Pinnell, Steve Leyland, Peter Stevens, and David S. And finally, a big thank you for me to Martin Brook, David O'Leary, Damian Knollis, Simon Heisterkamp, Donald Muir, Alan Parsons, not the Alan Parsons Project, Josephine Broughton, and Mick. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith, Ian Dunt, and Alexandre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison, and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.